Should Britain be a monarchy? Should it have a king or queen at the top of its political and social order? It's a hugely controversial question which triggers powerful emotions, especially for those who view the royal family as synonymous with all that is best about Britain. But a growing minority has not only reservations about the Windsors, but think they shouldn't play a role in Britain's future. Recent polling found that 25% of people would now like to see the monarchy abolished, a rise of 10% in just five years. Of course, that's far from a majority, but it's millions of people who are barely acknowledged, let alone reflected in the national conversation. So should we get rid of the royals? And what are the arguments for becoming a republic? With me to discuss that today is Graham Smith, CEO of Republic, a British Republican pressure group advocating the replacement of the monarchy with a parliamentary republic. Graham Smith, welcome to Downstream. Thank you. Have you always been a Republican? Uh, yeah, I've always instinctively been a Republican. I remember in 1986, I was 12 years old when they had the Andrew Sarah Ferguson wedding. Um, the school wanted to bring the TV into the classroom so we could watch it, and I wanted to go outside into the playground. So it's something that I've always instinctively felt. And your parents, were they Republicans? Yeah, my parents uh, have always been Republican. Um, I remember my dad saying that he was um, probably a similar age, probably about 10 or 11 when he saw the king visit. And he that was the moment he realised he didn't like the monarchy. Um, but they didn't instill it in me. They just kind of allowed us to uh, make up our own mind. Um, and I think when you're a kid, there's that sort of basic childish kind of notion of fairness, yeah. uh, which sticks with you. Um, and then when you learn, as you get older, more about it, uh, it makes even less sense. So your parents must have been quite, strange is a bit of a harsh word, but unusual because even if it's a minority pursuit today, republicanism is a much bigger strain within public life than it was 30 years ago. So yeah, but I think, that it, I think it's always been uh, a reasonably substantial um, minority. But yeah, I think it was probably, um, it wasn't something that was really talked about and it was certainly more difficult 30 years ago to have a sensible conversation about it. So yeah, unusual. I think, you know, they were both... Uh, Labour members, and they're both, you know, um, on the I think on the right side of a lot of issues, um, and uh, yeah, I think for them as well, it was just instinctive. So sort of CND sort of yeah, peace activist people, or not really, no. But I mean, just sort of you're, you know, fairly run of the mill sort of voters, really. That just progressives, yeah, progressive, definitely, yeah. Because it's an interesting one, isn't it? That although the UK in the 20th century had a really large, successful Labour movement, you know, you can look at socialists like Clement Attlee or Nye Bevan, and actually, you know, they, they were making arguments, well, particularly Attlee, making arguments for constitutional monarchy. Mm. So this idea that you're on the left of the economic debate and that you're also a Republican, yeah. that's intuitive for many people in Europe, but in Britain, it's not the case. Well, I think that, I mean, I think there's people on the left in Europe that have, you know, where the monarchy survives, people on the left have also argued for it. And part of it, I think, is a kind of... Um, there's a a reluctance to get into big constitutional change. Part of it is that the the way our constitution is set up now gives the government an awful lot of power, and that is always helpful to any prime minister, whichever party they're in. Um, so rocking that boat is not necessarily in their interests. I also think that with the Cold War probably um, sharpened divisions, and that became sort of a, a potential symbol of division that they didn't want to uh, get involved with. So um, I think there were sharper attacks against the left from the right in terms of communism and, and so on. So maybe that, I think, probably delayed a serious conversation about the monarchy. 
Um, but, you know, it did come up and uh, get discussed from time to time, but the really vocal Republicans were pretty uh, few and far between. So why do you want to end the British monarchy? What, what's it done to you, Graham? Well, same as it does to all of us. Same as it does to all of us. I mean, it, 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 there's a few basic points. The first one is just a matter of principle. You know, we are uh, Democrats in this country. Most of us, the vast majority of us, believe in democracy. Um, increasingly, most of us, I think, uh, don't necessarily believe in the British variant of democracy. We we have a lot of problems with you know the whole raft of uh, issues such as the electoral system, the you know the way the House of Commons works, the House of Lords, and all the rest of it. Um, but the the crown is you know at the centre of that, and the monarchy is at the centre of that. And Democrats should not be supporting an institution that rests on an entirely different set of values, which is, you know, sort of feudal values of bloodline, elitism, exceptionalism. Um, and that should be enough for most people. But if you're not that convinced about the, uh, the principle, the institution itself is not fit for purpose. You know, it is not going too far to say that it's corrupt, um, which is not uh about criminal or illegal behaviour. It's about sort of um, abuse of public office in terms of uh, uh, public money, uh, abuse through lobbying behind closed doors. And there's a whole raft of issues which, in the way in which that institution operates, not to mention the family themselves, who are not people we would vote for if we had a free and fair election. Um, but then the crown itself, you know, you've got the principle in the palace, but the, the, the constitution itself is pretty... Awful. I mean, we've got a, some people like to think that we've got this uh, uh, constitution, you know, the mother of parliaments, which is envied around the world, and it isn't. Uh, most countries that have parliamentary democracies have uh, do it better than we do. Uh, and the crown is a big part of that because it centralizes power in the hands of Downing Street um, at the expense of parliament and the rest of us. So, you know, whichever way you cut it, it's not an institution we should be supporting. So when I say things, it's because I'm playing devil's advocate and to sort of make sure your, your arguments are, are as robust as they can be so the audience can make their own minds up. The claim about corruption is an interesting one because some of the least corrupt countries on earth have constitutional monarchies. So for instance, often the Nordics are a byword for accountability and, and, and transparency in, in public life. And they have constitutional monarchs in Sweden, in Norway, in Denmark, same with the Netherlands. You could say the same with regards to Japan um, has an emperor. So the corruption argument, I mean, I could come back to you and say, well, there are lots of other constitutional monarchies which aren't corrupt. Sure, we might need to make some changes, but we could still have a sovereign. What would you say to that? The Those countries, the Nordic countries, they may well not be that corrupt, but that corruption still exists within their own monarchies. Now, they might not always see it like that in the same way that many people in this country don't see it like that. But I uh, have a close relationship with Republicans in those countries, and they are well aware that just as our monarchies, our monarchy uh, abuses public money, so does theirs. Um, they have various exemptions that they've lobbied for from uh, from laws, such as you know official secrecy laws and so on. Um, so it, it's on a different scale, and sometimes it's not so obvious. But the, you know, a monarchy is. I mean, the comparison I make is the MPs expenses scandal, which is what now 13, 14 years ago. Um, the issue is that if you have an institution which is not open and transparent and not properly accountable, and they have the people in that institution have access to money and to opportunity to lobby, knowing that no one's going to see what they're doing, there will be abuse, and that's just human nature. It's not everybody. Some people are good enough to, you know, police themselves, 
Um, but that is how the monarchy is. It's highly secretive. They've got access to everybody and anybody they want to have access to in terms of lobbying. And they have access to hundreds of millions of pounds of our money uh, every year. Um, and the end result is that they behave in a way that is corrupt. Now, the only way that you can really stop corruption is with transparency and accountability. And you can't do that with a monarchy because um, if you are transparent, you don't like what you what you see, that you can't do anything about it. You can't remove them. Um, so you have to have the accountability in there as well, which means you have to have someone who can be removed uh, and then choose someone else. So... You know, it it is kind of a design flaw that monarchies are inherently corrupt. But the, the, I suppose the, the comparison here is, if you look at France, let's just do Europe because, you know, we don't want to have too many variables at play. France and Italy have higher levels of corruption, both republics, than the Nordics. Or if you look in East Asia, Japan has um, less corruption than China. And these these are on formal indexes for global corruption. That's not my opinion. Yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about, I'm not saying that the monarchy makes Britain corrupt. I'm saying the monarchy itself is corrupt. Right. So the royal household, and it's not, you know, they're not- See, we wouldn't have less corruption in public life if we became a republic. No, I mean- To so a well, massive I, extent. I, I, think, you, less, I but... think you could have, and there's a wider argument about the quality of our politics. Um, I think the British politics is uh, pretty poor uh, across the board for all sorts of reasons. And there are certainly, um, there are certainly plenty of accusations of corruption. Um, but I think that uh, the the household itself, you know, I'll give examples. Let's get into detail. So, as I said, I'm not talking, although, you know, I did report uh, Charles um, to the police on suspicion of uh, selling honours for, um, for donations, um, in exchange for donations. Um, and the police have just dragged their feet and still haven't done anything about that. So there is an accusation of criminality. Um, it's only an accusation and they still haven't done anything about it which itself is telling. But there are, you know, corruption doesn't have to be illegal. It just has to be, you know, dishonest abuse of public office for personal gain. And they spend, uh, again, look at the um, MPs' expenses scandal. That was amounts of money that sort of ranged from the low hundreds up to the tens of thousands. Uh, the royals spend tens of millions um, and certainly several millions at a time on things like doing up their palatial homes, uh, they fly around by helicopter all the time, um, and they uh, take the income from the two duchies, which should be going to the treasury. So now this is an extraordinary amount of money. I think a lot of people aren't aware of this. Can you just explain that two duchies? Yeah, so the two duchies are two landed estates that um, they sh they were all part of the crown lands, and they were essentially hived off, and they were allowed to keep hold of them. Uh, and they treat them as private estates, but they're crown property. And each one of them brings in a profit of around £22 million pounds a year, which goes to so the Duchy of Lancaster now goes to Charles as monarch, and the Duchy of Cornwall now goes to uh, William. So on the Queen's death, William suddenly gained a £22 million pound a year income uh, for doing nothing other than being the son and heir uh, to his father. Um, and that money should be going to uh, the Treasury. And it, some people will say, look, no, it's not a lot of money. I mean, I, I added up uh, the incomes of heads of state, elected heads of state across Europe, and you add them all up, £22 million is six times all of them together. So it's a hell of a lot of money for someone who isn't even a head of state, in the case of William. But if you add those two, two amounts together, you're talking over £40 million, and £40 million was cut from a, uh, a fund to help people uh, with their rents and deposits. 
And when that was cut, people said, well, that's going to lead to more homelessness. So it's that kind of money that can have a real impact. And instead of it going to people that uh, might be struggling with their rent, it's going into William's pocket. Well, particularly Cornwall. I mean, you know, £22 over 10 years, £220 million. If you look at Cornwall, it's one of the poorest regions in Europe. I mean, you just had the levelling up, the second round of levelling up funding, and I think they're spending £35 million on connecting the four largest urban areas in Cornwall. So basic infrastructure doesn't exist. And you're giving, like you yeah. say, somebody who isn't even the monarch, £22 million a year. Yes, and it, I mean, absolutely. And also, if you look at the Scilly Isles as well, which um, the, the Dutch of Cornwall claims to own, is you know questionable claim, but we can't prove otherwise. Um, they claim to own most of the land there. And they lost their helicopter because um, it was being privately run and it got closed down by the owner. Um, and, you know, the, the aisles get completely cut off during winter months sometimes because wow. it's too rough for boats and planes. So the helicopter is quite important. So they lost that and Charles didn't lift a finger to help put it back. Now, there is someone, a private investor, quite some, you know, it's been gone for 10 years or more. Um, so that's being reintroduced. But he doesn't lift a finger to to help or hasn't done. Um, you know, we went down to the Isles of Scilly, talked to people who are leaseholders. So they, you know, they own their house, but it sits on Dutchy land and they were exempted from leasehold reform uh, laws. So they don't have the rights that anybody else has um, to buy their lease, to buy the freehold. They just simply can't do it. And that has a huge impact on uh, their uh, sort of financial future. Which is very much a feudal remnant, right? The whole leasehold thing, but the fact that it's... Well, indeed, yeah. But the, but the various laws have, have been introduced over the last 60 years, which give people rights to buy the freehold. Um, and that, uh, the Dutchy was simply exempted from that on their land. But I mean, the, you know, the Isles of Scilly is an interesting case. It, it kind of is run like its own little feudal state sometimes. And, you know, we talked to the taxi drivers. There's only two taxis on the island and the... the um, they said that you can tell the difference between the roads owned by the duchy and the roads owned by the council because the duchy ones are falling apart. So they don't get looked after. So he takes all this money and they don't put anything back in. So this idea that he cares about the public good and you don't, you don't think that's true? Or does, is he not, is, is, are his affairs and the estate so large, so complex that there are just things that Charles clearly isn't going to have a, a sort of well, any he, idea about? He is, he, he is said to take a very close personal interest in the way the duchy was being run when he was the Duke of Cornwall. Um, so I, I think he has to take responsibility for it. Whether he cares, I think he believes he cares, but he has, in terms of his own views on things, his, his um, agenda is not really shaped around people's real issues and problems. It's shaped around his own very um, rather odd, eccentric ideas Um which, again, are based on a kind of a, a worldview that is feudal and which is, sees the importance of someone like him in the middle and, and everybody else sort of um, plowing the fields. So I think that his, you know, his, his environmentalism as well is, is that kind of mindset as well. So um, he takes his view and he's not that open to criticism or to engaging with other people's opinions and uh, he'll just push his own view. So... Um, um, and as far as his own interests are concerned, he has fought tooth and nail to protect them uh, over the years, as have the rest of the world's. What do you make of him personally? Because obviously you speak to so many people who are impacted by Charles. Obviously, you know, there's been this gestation period for decades where he was waiting to become the head of state. And so I think lots of people have been able to form ideas and views on him, which wasn't necessarily the case for his mother before she became the sovereign. So 
as, as, a, as a human being, as a person, I'm not asking you to judge him because yeah. you don't know him, but from the information you've managed to gain, what's your, what's your read on the kind of person he is? Well, I, I, I don't think that we would vote for him if, he was a, if there was a free and fair election in which he was up against uh, other candidates. I think that he is, because of the, the world in which they're born into, they're quite prickly, quite um, thin-skinned. Um, all of them are prone to a real temper. You know, there's uh, stuff about um, Harry and William recently has also been said about Charles. Um, so he gets very angry. He's quite petulant, I think. Um, and he's, there have been various anecdotes of him being very um, uh, sort of disinterested in any kind of serious criticism or discussion about his views. He presents his views. He expects people to sort of um, applaud and take them on and, and uh, you know, deliver on them. So he's not sort of intellectually engaged in that way. So... Um, uh, and I don't think he really understands the world outside of his very immediate sort of circle of friends and advisors. So, yeah, I don't have a strong feeling uh, sort of view in terms of whether he's a good or bad person, but I think he is a complicated person who is not fit for public office. And is he different from his mother and father in that respect? Because obviously part of the strength of the brand of Elizabeth was that she was there for the Second World War. Prince Philip, obviously, not from the UK originally. He, he saw what it was like to... To lose power for a monarchy to get the boot, you know, his you know his his own family was in great jeopardy. So, do you think there's a genuine absence of kind of real world experience amongst Charles and William, which actually you could say was sort of a bit of a forte for their yeah, I mean, I grandmother I and I mother. I don't think the Queen had real world experience. I mean, she was never um, sent to any kind of formal education. Um, I think the you know the stuff about her being in the army. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure she did something, but it's not. She wasn't sent into the armed forces in the way that everybody else was. Um, and they were all pretty, uh, you know, they're all the product of the same world. And Charles is product of their, uh, them as being parents, you know. Um, so, so you don't think Charles is more cosseted than his parents? No, I think they're as, as much as, yeah. I think I perhaps William and Harry are a little bit less so, but... Um, uh, not least because they had to go to, I mean, Harry, uh, Charles went to school, but um, I think they grew up in a different era. So even the schools they went to wouldn't have been quite the same as the ones that uh, the experience that Charles might have had. But um, um, but yeah, I think the before, I mean, the Queen's era and before, I think they were very uh, closeted and in a very strange world that they grew up in. Can we row back a bit? You said she didn't do schooling. Yeah, I mean, she didn't go to, she didn't have a formal education. So what do you mean? She didn't go to a primary school? I don't think, as far as I'm 